I'll read from Galatians 3. Starting at verse 15. I'll read verses 15 to 18. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is as applicable in our world now as it was in Abraham's time, in Jesus' time, and for all time. We ask you now to open our ears and open our eyes that we might see and believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Anybody notice anything funny about our text today? Oh, yeah, yeah. Your, uh, your notes sheet just has the text in it. Gary was asked if they could at least provide a piece of paper so they could take notes because I don't provide any. And as a matter of fact, it's funny because this time I did actually provide a handout. I have like 80 pages in my black bag back home. And yet it had very little white space on it, so it's good that you have this one that Gary provided. But uh, there's another odd thing about this, and it's that if you paid attention, last week was ver- were verses 1 through 9. And this week is verses 15 to 18. So it's not that I don't like those verses that come in between. It's that I preached on them last September. So that message, I like so much those verses that I already used that last fall. Now, today's message is about promises, promise or promises. As a matter of fact, uh, the word occurs in all but the first of our verses, and so it's spread throughout. And so I wanted to begin with a few quotes about promises. The first is by a man named Bernard Barrick, who was a businessman like 80, 100 years ago. And this is his uh, word of wisdom concerning promises. Vote for the man who promises least, for he will be the least disappointing. And right on the heels of that, I don't know if anybody here gets emails from an organization called PolitiFact, but PolitiFact uh, is an organization that claims that it's unbiased and fair. I'm so far right-wing that maybe they are and I don't know it, but they sure seem left-leaning to me. But even they ranked uh, President Obama's campaign promises, and they're now up to 41 broken campaign promises. They keep counting them. And I think many of the ones where they don't consider them broken, I think we would. Thus, I feel that they're a little left of me anyway. But uh, another one is the promise, the promise given was a necessity of the past. The promise given was a necessity of the past. The word broken is a necessity of the present. Very pragmatic wisdom from Machiavelli. All politicians, I think, abide by this. That's why we have so many presidents breaking promises that were made during a campaign. Another, a promise is a cloud. Fulfillment is rain. So clouds are cheap. Let's see the rain. 
of the fulfillment of the promise. And the last one I'll share with you is promises are like babies, usually easy to make but often hard to deliver. (laughs) And for the pregnant ladies in our midst, they can relate. Now I want to read actually a experience of a man. Uh, This was just, uh, I think last month that he wrote this. He blogged about this. The title is Cascade of Broken Promises, and it's about a MacBook. (laughs) I got my new MacBook Pro the other day. It comes with migration assistance, a piece of software that promises to easily transfer years of old data from one machine to another. The software failed. First promise broken. Having paid $99 for the one-to-one service, which promises individual hour-long sessions, I made an appointment and headed over to the store. Nate, the promised guide, doesn't know how to fix it because despite the promise, he's not trained to do it. Second broker's promise. He hands me over to a genius, Michael, who hears my story and promises to personally handle it. It takes 10 hours to do the transfer, but he'll watch over it and make sure it goes well. He actually looks me in the eye and says, I promise to personally handle this. The next day, the phone rings. It's Ideen, who has the case, doesn't know Michael, and doesn't know what to do. (laughs) She leaves a message. I call back, talk to someone at the store who insists that Ideen is not available, but that someone will call me back within 30 minutes. He says, I promise that someone will call you within 30 minutes. An hour later, no one had called back. It goes on and on. All of us, I think, can relate to this. And actually, he goes on to say, hey, this is not a rant about Apple. This is just a rant about poor customer service because it's not just Apple that does this type of thing. We've all been given the runaround. And these poor people, they think they're doing us a favor by promising us to deliver when we know it's not in their ability typically to fulfill those. But they just think that it will buy them some time, perhaps, buy them a little kinder treatment, perhaps, I don't know. But we know that promises are made and broken with ease in our world. That's why we tend to view promises made as that cloud and promises fulfilled as the rain. And yet, the piece of paper that I was going to hand out to you, actually, I I had hoped to include it in your bulletin, was a story about a man who it was he wrote it about his father and the title of his little article was my father never broke a promise so he was writing long after his father's death on the anniversary of his death and he wrote this article as a writer and he just said my father was a great man a man of integrity and never broke a promise to me that i that he knew of i guess that he remembered but it was just there are people that don't make break promises and so god makes promises too and his word is filled with promises. When you search, you see, uh, I think, 150 occurrences of the derivative, the root promise, and so many of them, at least 50 that I counted, I was just going through, and they most all point back to God's promises. You're being reminded always in Scripture that God has promised you this, God has promised you that. And so God fulfills his promises. Deuteronomy 15.6 is just one of many examples. It says, the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised. And so this is Moses talking to the people, uh, affirming for them over and over again that God can be trusted. And our text is about a promise made by God. And yet the first verse that we begin with is really about 
man, about man's promises. And so that's why I began with man's promises. So let's read, read verse 15 again. Galatians 3.15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, and what he means is I'm speaking concerning man, concerning our culture. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. And I've used this uh, description before, this phrase, but it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Paul is saying, even in our culture, we hold men accountable to their words. And it, it's important. And so therefore, let's hold God accountable to his word because it's important to him as well. So God commands us in the Bible to keep our word. This is Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement. So this is where he's uh, either obligated himself to the Lord or to his fellow man. He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And we are to do this even if it is to our disadvantage. And the uh, reading that, uh, for the confession earlier was Psalm 15. And I hadn't seen the bulletin, but yet this is I pulled directly from Psalm 15, and I wanted to go into Psalm 15 a bit. And so it's wonderful that we just had a chance to read it. But in Psalm 15, I'll read the whole thing. It's five verses. A Psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? So it starts with those two questions. And then the rest of the text answers those two questions. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Psalm 15 is a, a psalm that conveys to you the character of a child of God. And so this psalm is a standard against which we compare ourselves and we compare this to anyone who says they're a child of God. So if you have your doubts about the fruit of someone, compare them to Psalm 15. Now, it's not to say that they are adamantly not a Christian if they're violating some of these, but they're not a very faithful Christian if they're violating many of these. Look at this. He who walks uprightly, works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart. He speaks the truth in his heart. I read a paper or a brief article this week, and it said that there was this study then, I think it was in England, and they found that in this game that they devised, they measured people relative to what they were going to do in the game. And before the game, they could make these statements about, I will do this or I will do that. And you may choose to adhere to what you had told yourself before the game, or you may not. And what they found is that in each case where the person later deviated from what, how they said they would behave in the game, the, the indicators that they had and the feedback that they got from their brain told them that they were going to do that. They were going to cheat, essentially in the game. And so when they were making the vow before the game, when they were making these statements that they were agreeing to, that they were going to share so much of their money, their game money with this other person that they didn't really have to, but that other person was going to help them in the game in return for this. And yet everybody 
that had cheated, that had told a lie, then later in the game went on to act that out. And so it shows that even in the brain, this is what it says, and speaks the truth in his heart. Now we know that the heart isn't about the heart, the pumping organ, it's about our wills. And our mind is a much better indicator of our wills. And so we have these indicators. God has put these in us that we can even measure externally that get at this and speaks the truth in his heart. These people were lying in their heart. And these people were not God's people. They were not behaving like Christian children should behave. He who does not backbite with his tongue, so here's our tongue, does evil to his neighbor, that's actions against our neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. So it gets closer and closer. You see, what, you see what it is? It's getting more and more sinful as these are being described. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. During the prayer of supplication, Pastor Kaiser spoke about the imprecatory psalms. It is that we are to hate vile people. It's not that we are to love vile people. You know what I mean? Now, yes, sure, there's an aspect to which God causes his reign to fall on the vile and, and the righteous. And yet, we are not to condone the behavior of vile people. We're not to want to be with them. God's word all over says, get away from them. Now, granted, yes, bombast them with, with scud gospel missiles from afar, but don't think that you have to get in the gutter with them to become their friend in order to relate to them not with people that behave in a vile manner. It's just not wise. You, you will sully yourself, and you will not be honoring God by what you're doing, by what you're participating in. So Psalm 15 is this beautiful illustration of God's children. And the one I want to emphasize to you is what is in the second part of verse 4. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, if this is the conduct of God's children, in a sense, you must think of it then as something that God will use to change you if you're God's child. He will make you like this. So therefore, he will challenge you in ways that tempt you to behave differently than what this describes. So, he who swears to his unhurt and does not change. So therefore, will God bring situations into your life where you have made a commitment to someone that you really don't want to honor at this point because it is to your hurt? I didn't know what I was saying when I said that. Why did I say that? I'm a fool. Yes, but you're God's fool, and you should honor your words, even if they were spoken in haste. And so God expects this of his children. He, he will hold us accountable to this. Now, even in our society, now we're talking about God's family, but now even in society, we have contract law. And we have obligations. God tells us here to honor our agreements to people. And yet in Galatians, we are told, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, if it is confirmed, no one nulls or adds to it. So what does it mean to be confirmed? It means to be acknowledged. It's stamped. Yes, this is the truth. Boom. Now, people might always argue about what exactly was said or committed to or promised to. We know that. There are misunderstandings. We sometimes assume, and there's ambiguity in words. And yet, that yet, therefore, when we do agree, and some people will disagree just to fight you. They know the truth, but they just want to fight you. They don't want to honor their word. And that's why there needs to be this third party that gets involved. And so that's where I think this confirmation comes from. Yet, yet if it is confirmed... This is an impartial third party that is being brought in to confirm this. 
This is someone who knows the truth and who now can bring that truth to bear upon both of the parties that are debating it. So once deals are made, they're to be honored. And so what we do often in our culture is if we have contracts that we fear people may not honor, honor, we attach penalties to breaking them. But the same person that broke the contract is the same person that gets penalized for having broken the contract, and now they're supposed to give you something, right? That's still in their power, that's still in their home or in their bank account, and what makes you think they're going to give you that? And so this is why the ultimate penalties are those that go to the third party, right? They hold it in escrow. You break this contract, they get to give it to the party that did not violate their part. And so this is when it really gets risky, right? When we commit to doing something, we can say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they say, give me a check for $1,000. Ooh, okay, now this is serious stuff. You know, this is getting expensive. I don't really know that I want it that badly. Well, you need to give me that if, if we're going to go through with this. You're making a commitment. Oh, I am? Oh, I didn't know that. You know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, I want to go there. You know, our, our presbytery may have found that out. Yeah, they had a 1,000 people say, yes, we want to go out into the mountains and spend a week in California in the mountains. But then suddenly when people have to mill money and make commitments, it's like, oh, you know, dropping off. It's just, it's just the way we work. We know this. And so that church should have protected against that, perhaps better. But you just live and learn. You experience these things, and you grow wiser through time. And typically it is our failures that make us wise. What is it? Uh, a wise man learns from his own failures. A wiser man still learns from the failures of others. So we all want to be wise and learn better from the failures of others. But uh, I want to talk about this breaking of the word, especially in the family. There's a story, two girls, two little girls, and the two little girls are playing together. They're brother and sister, or they're, they're not brother and sister. They're older sister and younger sister. But uh, the younger sister wants to play mommy, you know, where they each kind of act like the mom and boss the little kids around, I guess. And uh, the older daughter wants to play teacher. That's where she gets to be the teacher and boss the other kids around. Everybody wants to boss people around and play in games. But so the little girl wants to play this, and the older, older sister says, okay, let's play mine first, and then we'll play yours. Okay, so they play teacher, and she tests her on her math and spelling and all this stuff, and then they get done playing. And she says, well, now let's play, you know, mommy. No, I don't want to. So the older sister reneges on her promise, and this little girl is horrified. She's thinking, this is so wrong. This is outrageous, and she's going into this tirade, and their mother hears it. And so their mother comes in and starts yelling at the younger one. And the younger one's trying to explain, yes, but yes, but yes. You girls just need to get along. Don't make me come in here again. So now here's the third party, the impartial third party that could have figured this out, that could have solved the problem. And what did they do? They abdicated. They said, you figure it out. And so what that little girl learned then was she can't trust her sister and I'm never going to trust you again. Isn't that what she learned? As opposed to having the mom get engaged get at the roots of why they're bickering, figure it out, come down hard on the daughter who's reneging on her promise, make her play as she'd promised she would play, and then the little girl learns that there is a force to be reckoned with here. There's, there's a cost to failure of honoring your contracts and your agreements. And yet too often we parents are just so busy to dig into the details. We don't care. We just want it to go away. Quit yelling at each other. Well, you know, if they're yelling, there's something. 
Now, granted, in a dysfunctional home where the kids are always doing this, then it's hard to get at the root of anything because it's just so inbred into children's character. But if you nip it in the bud, if you begin by dissecting them, you'll find a party to blame. And then you do the right thing and you correct them. So it's just that's what God will do with us. That's what he does with us. But do we learn? Or does he have to do it again next week? There is a... uh, there is a movie called The Ultimate Gift, and it's a favorite. And actually, I even recommend it. I don't think there's any cuss words in it at all. But uh, there's a businessman at the beginning of the movie that calls this fellow who's the, uh, who just graduated first in his class out of lawyer school. And he says, I hear you're first in your class at this, at this school. And he said, yes, sir, I was. He said, well, I want you to be my lawyer. And he says, well, are you sure, sir? Because the man that he's calling is black. He was the first one in his class, and this is 1950s South. And the man said... Well, you're not lying to me, are you? You were first in your class. He says, yes, sir, I was. Well, then, you're my lawyer. And uh, so then this white man and black man form a business relationship in 1950s South, which was unusual. But all he wanted was the truth. All he wanted was someone good. And they just shook hands. Actually, not even that, their word over the phone. And they founded a relationship that lasted 50 years. So that's what being a man of your word is, being a woman of your word is. It's, It's being trustworthy honoring your word. So now in this verse 15, I want to point out something. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. The word covenant is used here, and it's actually used in the New American Standard, the NIV, but actually the word here can be rendered this, and let me read it again. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's last will and testament. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Every amplified Bible that you read does perceive this as being a will. It is not just a covenant, it is a will. And so I think it's reasonable for us to also use that as our working definition. We're talking about a will here. And so what we're talking about in society is a will. And so if a will has been made, society honors it. They honor that dead man's wishes. And I have, many of us probably have firsthand account of this. When my dad died, we found his will And we found that there was a flaw in it, two flaws, actually. And so we read this, and we were like, "Uh uh-oh, it doesn't mention my mom. He just gives all of his property to his kids. And yet his mom, my mom was alive at the time. And so we all realized that what he had done is he had made up, he'd bought this uh, legal Uh, will software and he had run it through the system but he was just thinking in terms of where he and my mom were going they were going to go on a vacation they were going to go on a long drive across the country that summer and he just wanted a will to cover in case they both died so he wrote this will up as if they both died and so we had to go to the judge and ask that the will be construed differently than what it was actually written because what we had to prove to that judge was that this would not have been my father's wishes he made a mistake And it was difficult. We had to get every one of the heirs to agree to waive their right to this. Now, the state of Ohio would not have entirely disenfranchised my mom of money, but it would have been entirely different probate. She would have just gotten the amount of money that was mandatory by the state that a man could not disenfranchise his wife from his uh, uh, estate. And that's all she'd have gotten because that's all that would have been by law obligated to her. And then the rest of us would have divvied up the rest, you know. And so in a dysfunctional family, that might happen. You, you have some little thing like that, and it devastates everybody. But we were 
not the greatest of families, but I guess we weren't to that level of dysfunctionality. And so everybody said, oh, yeah, our dad would have wanted this. And so we all construed the will to imply that it all would have gone to my mom. But it was not easy. We had to go. We all had to sign forms. We had to all go see this judge. He had to make sure that none of us were trying to coerce one another into signing this paper. And I just kept thinking, oh, will anybody, you know, because it didn't seem to me that it was likely, but I still fretted a little bit over it. I thought, ah, oh, how, how could this, how could this guy not tell? But it's the law. There's, there's the wishes of the dead person that's gone, that can't defend themselves, and so that has to be honored by the state, by society. So now that's what this is really about. Let me, let me read the rest of this. I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's will, Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now the promises are within the will. And so there is this document, and then there are the promises that are within the document. So just think of it like that. I think it's an easy way to understand this. He does not say unto seeds. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which is 430 years later. So now what we're getting at now is this. Now, Paul loosely quotes from the Old Testament here, and we have to go back to the Old Testament to figure out exactly what he's referring to. But what he says is this, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, let's go back to starting at Genesis 12, and we'll read five different places where the promise to Abraham is referenced in Genesis. The first one is in Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. The next one, 1315, just for me, the next page over. All the land which you see I give to you and your descendants. It was just after uh, they had separated from Lot. He says, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Again, a land promise. The next one is in 15, 5. 15, verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. So this is not really so much about land, it's about descendants. And then the next one is 22, 18. 22, 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And the last one, 24-7. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So I, again, a reference to the land. Now in my Bible, as in probably many of your Bibles, when you have a reference for the text that I'm in, Genesis 3.16, it points to three verses here, Genesis 12.7, Genesis 13.15, and Genesis 24.7. Only the ones about his descendants being promised the land. And yet, I don't think that's what is being referenced here, at least not only what Paul is referencing here. And so it's interesting to me that, that the Bible uh, writers who add these references in have chosen to focus only on the land promises. To me, it reflects perhaps a bias in their theology. But we want to focus on this seed. Now, to Abraham and his seed 
where the promise is made. He does not say unto seeds. So Paul makes much of this singular or plural definition of this word. It can be both singular and plural, can't it? Seed. We have many words like this that are kind of ambiguous. Like, for instance, let's say, who, does anybody here own a cow? You own cow? Do you, do you own a cow or do you own cows? Do you own sheep or do you own sheep? None? Okay. Anybody own sheep? Nope, nobody owns sheep. I know you own goats. But see, goat and goats, that's again singular and plural. But if I had a farm and I told my son to go out and put the cow away, how many am I talking about? One. If I said to put the cows away, how many am I talking about? More than one. That's all we know, right? If I tell my son to go put the sheep away, how many am I talking about? One or more, right? We don't know. But does my son know? Most likely. He knows whether we have one sheep or more. He knows whether I'm referring to uh, perhaps sheep that are here as opposed to there. So there's a context here in which God can communicate to Paul to, to, through Moses. And we know the meaning. They know the meaning. It's in the context, right? And so context dictates whether you're to perceive that as singular or plural. Now, this gets interesting, though. Paul here in Galatians tells us exactly how to interpret seed, singular, as Christ. And yet we know that the promise to Abraham was to him and to his descendants. Multiple seeds. Seeds, not seed, seeds. And so here we have a word that is both singular and plural, and yet the, the uh, singular form can be used for both singular and plural, seed and seeds. And yet seeds can be used as well. It's very interesting. It's, a, it's an unusual word. If we say cow or cows, and we tell you to go put the cow away, and we mean multiple, or go put the cows away, and we mean one, it doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. But with seed, we could say go put the seed in the barn. And that could refer to a bag of seed. It, it, does it refer to a seed? You know. You know, go put that seed in the barn. No, you know, it's, it's almost always get, you're going to take a plural. But here, Paul says it is singular. It is singular, and he knows. So Paul views Christ as the seed, and he's looking at it with the eyes of what he now knows. He knows this is exactly concerning the fulfillment of this scripture. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this whole seed thing, because the text that I referred to, one of the five here, is Genesis 22:18. And this is the one that clearly Paul has in his mind, but it's the one that the people who wrote our reference Bible are reluctant to point at. It's odd. But so in 22, 18, we read this. Well, here, I'll start a little earlier. I'll start at 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the verse that Paul is referring to as being singular. And yet in the very prior verse, he refers to descendants. So there it's plural. So see, both are there. And as a matter of fact, when I, when I uh, did the communion meditations last spring, 
I talked about these fulfillments. I talked about Abraham and how we, we talk about the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. And you can see that there's both this physical aspect and this spiritual heavenly aspect. God is using both of them in this one verse. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand. So he's using both at the same time, both heavenly and physical, earthly, spiritual. It's just so I believe God has both in mind in Genesis 22, 18, and Paul is only isolating the one reference to Jesus as seed, yet knowing that there is this aspect in which all of Abraham's descendants were talked about. But we have to go into more detail here. For instance, when we say that all of Abraham's descendants, let's call them the seed, the descendants of Abraham, were they all included? You know they weren't. Because we're all familiar with that phrase, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, who's Isaac's brother? Ishmael, disinherited, not a part of the descendants. Who's Jacob's brother? Esau, not of the seeds that we're talking about here, not of the descendants. And then also Abraham had a second wife after Sarah, Keturah. She had many children, none of them part of the descendants that are being spoken of. So even in the physical descendancy of Abraham, seeds doesn't refer to everybody without exception. It's only a subset. So people, I mean, we, we tend to try to think in terms of ones and zeros. We're all binary creatures. And we're always trying to say true or false, yes or no. But it's not always that simple. God's word is, is always messing with our heads in that regard. He wants us to think more deeply than that. Not that we twist things into, into uh, nonsensical meanings, but yet we have to understand what God means. So there is an earthly and a spiritual sense in all of this. And let's go to Romans. Now, Galatians is a six-chapter book. Romans is a 16-chapter book, right? 16 chapters. And so there are two different ways of going through this whole presentation of the gospel. And in Romans 4, we have an expanded version, kind of, of what we're going through. So in Romans 4, verses 13 through 18, I'll read that. Romans 4, 13 to 18. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him who believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So we see here that he's speaking of Abraham as being uh, this father of all who believe. All the seed are in Abraham. And yet we just talked about how not just all the physical, but there is this spiritual aspect. So there is something interesting going on here. Look at verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Now, where in the Old Testament was Abraham to be the heir of the world? Nowhere. You can't see it explicitly stated like that. You must merge the land promises with the promises that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations and all peoples of the earth in order to come even close to that. And yet Paul 
in commenting on this, knits it together for us. The New Testament has revealed something that was true in the Old Testament, but was much harder to see. And yet in the New Testament, we see that Abraham is the heir of the world, and therefore all of his spiritual descendants are heirs of the world. The physical descendants have really been cut off. They've been overtaken by the spiritual. That's what the whole death of Christ was all about, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But so these promises, the land promises to the physical nation of Israel and these spiritual promises, they all merge into Christ. And the spiritual really takes precedence over the physical. Now, the promise preceded the law, right? The promise came to Abraham around 1900 B.C. or so. The law in the form of the Mosaic law, Moses coming down from the mountain, didn't happen until about 400 years later. So the promise to Abraham was long, long, long before the law. Now, we know that the law was in the garden. I've talked to many of you about that, how, how uh, James Usher and then A.W. Pink have kind of documented that, that right there in the garden, Adam and Eve broke all Ten Commandments. And I could go into detail about that, but I won't bother at this point. But I do have a, have a hand out there if you're curious. But so we know the law preexisted, the moral law, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Mosaic law in conjunction with the ceremonial law that was brought in for the nation of Israel, this specific instantiation of moral law. This moral law did not in any way affect the promise. The promise preexisted, and the promise existed after. Because when you really look at the history of the Jews, what happened? As a nation, they so abandoned the law that God had blessed them with that God abandoned them. He gave them over. He took them over. In 710, the northern kingdom is taken. In 590, the southern kingdom is taken. They no longer have a nation in which they can practice their laws. After that, all the way up until the time of Christ, the never, nation was never really their own anymore. They were ruled. They were ruled by other forces. That's why the Jews wanted so to escape this. They thought, they thought their Messiah would save them from this oppression of other nations. And yet this was God that had brought this to pass. They had ignored his law, and therefore he gave them over to the curses of the law that he had pronounced upon them. So the promise was made to Abraham 400 years before, and then the law comes, and the law fades away, in a sense. The effectiveness of the law dissipated with the dissipation of the nation of Israel. And so then you have Christ come after these centuries of silence, centuries of the prophets having abandoned God's people, these earthly people, descendants of this physical blessing, Abraham's physical descendants, and yet they're like dead leaves hanging at the ends of the limbs of this tree that John the Baptist speaks of the, the axe being laid at the root of that tree. There is a new tree that God is planting in Christ that will take the place of that old tree. So the promise entirely envelops the law. It exists outside of the law, and it survives beyond the law, and they are no way related to one another. In the same way, and this goes back to why this is the last will and testament. In the same way that when the promise is embedded in this last will and testament, and it's given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and then the patriarchs, it is this last will and testament. Who is the testator? Who's the person that dies 
before this comes into effect? Christ. So see, they're holding a will for about 1,900 years that they couldn't really have full effect of until Christ died. And it just is a beautiful way of illustrating this. The law of Moses promised life to those that could perfectly keep it, and yet no one did. No one could. And so all it really did was remind them of death, remind them of condemnation. But the promise of Abraham, that was credited to him as righteousness. And what was credited to him? That faith was credited to him. But that's a credit in that it goes into your bank account, right? But it's really something that you aren't able or, or uh, needing to withdraw from. You really don't, you really don't, you're benefiting from it on this earth, and yes, but the full drawing of it will be in heaven and forever in heaven. And so that exists at, to, to cancel out all the debts when we leave this earth. And it exists now as we're going through our daily lives. And it's annulling debts as we would be desperately trying to accumulate them, perhaps, as if we're these rampant um, materialists. But yet that is the cre- what the credit was given to Abraham. So Abraham was the heir, and then subsequent his children, now down to us. And then you have the church gathering in Acts 2, long after the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. And when you have the Holy Spirit drop in upon them on that day of Pentecost, it's as if that's the reading of the will. You have God's people then opening that will and beginning to experience the full effect of it. They had not understood it. For 1,900 years, they really hadn't understood what it was that was being passed down from generation to generation. And then you had uh, Peter go to Cornelius, and then it was realized, ah, and this is where you see the promises merge. You see the land promises of the Old Testament and the, the spiritual salvation that has come merging to where Paul could say that Abraham is heir of the world. So it's just a beautiful way that God has knit this all together through this last will and testament that we have laid out for us here. Garth Brooks once said this, and I remember hearing this, and I thought, wow, this is an odd way to put this. But he said, I have more money than my children's children's children will need. He's a very famous man, a very famous country singer, and he said this probably, I don't know, eight or or nine years ago or something. But he also said this, and so uh, Garth Brooks, I think, at least is close to the door of heaven. He said, you aren't wealthy until you have something money can't buy. So see, he knew, even though he has all this money, he knows that's not the key to life. Now, I don't know whether he's a true believer, but yet he at least knows that money isn't the answer, that materialism isn't the answer. So see, neither do our money or good works or what that, whatnot, neither is that wealthy. Neither is that true wealth. None of that can purchase salvation. And yet what Garth had said, you aren't wealthy until you have something money can't buy, that is exactly what we have as God's children. We have something money can't buy. And we have a God who has made us heirs of the world all the wealth of the world, everything that you could possibly ever set your eyes upon and lust after, God has promised to you. Just be patient. We want things now. 
But God just says, be patient. And when I say want things, I'm just not talking things. I'm talking about all of what we might want in this world that we think would make us more happy, more content, more fulfilled. God holds all of that, and he will give it to you in his time. But he has it. He has it for us. In Philippians 1.29, Paul said this to the Philippians. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe in him. That is where this wealth emanates from, from this relationship that God has just freely given to us. And yet we can so often, I love during the prayer of confession, we can just so often not take advantage of the opportunities we have to reach out to God. We are 2,000 years removed from Pentecost. We're 2,000 years removed from the reading of the will. And yet the benefits of that still change society. God's will, because of the death of God, because of the fact that that will was read and it has gone forth, it is changing the earth and it will continue to change the earth. This is a description of an inheritance that doesn't just get dissipated by spendthrifts. Garth's grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they might be horribly materialistic. Unlike him, he can at least see that this isn't the answer. Will his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren? We don't know. Money can destroy things. But we, thankfully, God has given us a gift that really money can... uh, Uh, dissuade us from reveling in it like we should, but yet it can't steal it from us. So so I don't wish any of you great wealth. I I wish you enough to be comfortable, but uh, we really should learn to be content with much less than what we think we want at times. So we are heirs of this promise of Abraham. We are heirs of the world. Our names are written in this will. So let's pray. Let's give him thanks. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your promises. It's said that uh, all of your promises are yes and amen in Christ. It was Jesus who fulfilled these promises on our behalf. And we thank you so much, Lord, for all that he has done. We thank you for the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, even now applies them to our hearts and minds each day. We long to be closer to you, and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, draw us close to yourself, that we would not be content to wallow in this world, to behave just as if we did not know what was in that will when it was read so long ago. We ask you, Lord, to be with us, to guide us, to lead us, and to uh, lead us uh, into truth, that you would uh, open the eyes of those that we know and love, those that we care about, Uh, We pray, Lord, give us hearts to be concerned for people that we come into contact with. Uh, We pray that this message would uh, go forth and would honor you in all the areas where people might listen to it, where people might uh, be able to print it out and share it. Uh, We want to reach the world for you, Lord. Uh, It is you that have done this, and we pray that you would make us faithful servants. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.